Right. Marty, you look good, man. Well, thank you. What are you wearing? And he got a haircut too. Yeah, like, I had to make my muscles look. My muscles look bigger. Are you two hundred five? What are you? One one ninety five. Nice. What's up, guys? There he is. There he is. Sorry, a little bit late. What's up, Marty? Good morning, Dorian. How are you? Good afternoon. I'm great, mate. How are you? Uh, couldn't be better. Cool. We're so th we're so thrilled to have you on. We we were beside ourselves. We've been asking Marty to reach out for how long, Marty? Years. Long Years. time. Yeah. We're, always talking about we're, on the, we're on the same page, you know? We've been on the same page for a long time, tying together the physical and the mental, spiritual. Uh, exactly. So, exactly. Pleasure. Exactly. Pleasure, exactly. exactly. And we both kind of, I think the last time we saw each other, weren't we in like the, uh, the bucolic confines of Elizabeth, New Jersey? We're in the fucking asshole of the world. In the <laughs> How did we end up there? And now sucks, look at it. Sucks, man. Right. Well, that was like that was not that was not the nicest period of my life. I was uh, involved with some people out there and with my business, and it didn't work out. But that place sucked, man. And like you know, New <laughs> yes. York, New York across the river is a different story, right? But that place, I don't know, it was just a weird vibe there. That's well, a place where the Sopranos, all the mafia guys were. Yeah, what what part of New Jersey was it? I don't even know. Uh, like exit ten on the turnpike, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, New Jersey. Yeah. Was it? What was that gym there called? Um, it was a pretty hard uh, gym. Yeah, it was all right. It was okay, you know. But again, uh, it was a transitional time. Now, at the time, I believe you had just met your wife. Probably, yeah. I think it was, uh, I met my wife in 2009, yeah, 2008, 2009. Yeah, it was probably around that time, around yeah, 2010, yeah, you, I guess, I think. You, you, guys were, you guys were a new item, I think, at the time. And uh, you said something funny to me at the time. It was like, and an aside, because she's, you know, strikingly beautiful. And I said, you guys get along great. And you go, yeah, you go, I don't speak Portuguese. <laughs> she don't speak English. <laughs> Perfect relationship. <laughs> oh, it's it's funny because uh, she couldn't speak very good English, and I speak zip Portuguese. Right. Right. But her English grammar was better than mine. Her, her spelling was better than mine, and she could write great English. So we used to sit on the couch. She'd write me a note, and I'd write one back, and that's how it started. You know, and and then you two got to evolve together, right? Because as she became more facile with English, right? I mean, you you guys yeah. were yeah. That's uh, that's an interesting way to build a relationship. So where where are you located now? I'm in Spain on the Marbella on the south coast coast of Spain. It's called the Costa del Sol, okay. the, you know, coast of sun uh, in English and. Uh, it's quite a popular place. There's a lot of uh, British people here, so yeah, but don't even of... don't even need to speak Spanish. I mean, I speak a little <laughs> bit. It's not it's not a requirement. Everyone speaks English here, so you know, a lot of people from the states are like, why are you living in Spain? But it's kind of like I don't know. It's like uh, maybe 
because you want to live if in you're from New Jersey and you can get out of New Jersey and you go live in Miami or yes, Florida yeah. or something like that. It's like that. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? Uh, if you can do it. Yeah. I, I moved from Washington, D.C. to the mountains. Yeah. I, I, I remember your uh, your book talking about the, you know, the the kind of hikes and the speed walking he was doing up the mountains there and the hills and everything. Yeah. It sounds that was, beautiful. Well, we got everything here. We got the beach. I live right by the beach, and behind us is mountains. Uh, and you got like it's a little bit like LA in that you got a lot of very wealthy people here with big yachts and huge mansions and stuff like that. Uh, but you got like um, you know a spiritual community here as well, and uh, just regular people. So it's a nice mix, really. Well, I was going to ask you, how does your how does your perfect day unfold there when, when you when you have the time to yourself and you're you're able? How do you, you wake up at what time and what do you what do you do that day? Well, if it's a perfect day, it depends. You know, I, I might have some calls to do and I got an online coaching uh, platform. So I spend a bit of time on that. But I like to be, being as I'm English, I just like to be outside all the time as much as possible because it's, the weather's beautiful here compared to what we're used to there. Like, you know, cloudy and gray and rainy a lot of the time. Uh, here is, you know, it's a very similar weather to LA, I guess. Maybe a little warmer, I'm not sure, but it's pretty similar. Uh, so even in the winter, it's nice. And we've got a lot of nature here. So I like to get out, go for some hikes. Uh, I've been doing a bit of biking. Nothing really serious, but nothing I do now is like really serious. If you like, you know, like I try Whatever to be in the middle. I try to be in the middle somewhere of everything I do. Like I do a little bit of yoga, I do some Pilates, I do a little bit in the gym. I'm limited because I got, I had one pretty serious shoulder injury, and yeah, you know, the bicep and tricep injury from the career, uh, and then a. I had shoulder problems anyway when I finished. And then I was doing some grappling with a friend of mine and that popped the supraspinatus. I had surgery on it, but it never, it came off again. And I just left it in the end. Um, then I was mountain biking. I came off the bike and did the other shoulder, totally dislocated it and tore the, again, the supraspinatus and subscap. And, but I, I rehabbed it without the surgery. Surgeons, of course, I mean, you know, they're surgeons. Of course, they want to do surgery. You know? Yeah, right away. Uh, asking a surgeon if you should have surgery is a bit like asking a car salesman if you need a new car. Right. Exactly. That's the way I look at it. So um, a lot of people are finding ways around now, avoiding surgery. So that's what I did. But it, both shoulders being weak or having no supraspinatus, it limits what I can do in the gym. But I um, – I'm not frustrated by that. I did what I did in the past and I've never surpassed that anyway. So I do a little bit, you know, I do a little bit of weights. I do a little bit of yoga and Pilates. I do some hiking. I do some biking. Um, I like to do some physical activity, whatever it is. You know, I was doing grappling and jujitsu with some friends of mine, which probably wasn't the best choice with the tendons all beat up from years of weight training. But I like to do different things. When I was doing bodybuilding, I was doing bodybuilding. Right. 100% and there was no room for nothing else, you know, right. like I might play a game of pool or something like that. There's none physical, but nothing else. I wouldn't do nothing else. So it's nice to explore different things. And uh, I enjoy not being good at stuff. 
you know, I, you know, I was just leaving yeah, the yeah. door and, and being uh, a beginner, yeah. a beginner's mind and all yeah, that. Yeah, and like, I, when if I go to yoga or Pilates, I'm like, I'm a, I'm a student here. Just tell me what to do and show me what to do. And I like being in that. Like, if I'm in the, I do coaching in the gym a little bit as well. And there, you know, I'm the boss, and I'm telling exactly what goes on because that's my area of expertise. But uh, other stuff, I like to be a student. I like to learn. But you've got to feel so much better now, physically and mentally, that you did what you did. Now you're where you're at, and you can do just focus on whatever you feel like doing that day. Well, it's a, for longevity. I, I remember telling uh, Chris Cormier. I mean, Chris is a good friend of mine, but uh, he, he was never reached his potential because he liked to party and girls too much, which is great. You know, I like that as well. But everything in his time, I told Chris, I said, Chris, listen. When you're an old man and you're sitting in that rocking chair, you don't want to be thinking to yourself, oh, what if, yeah. what if, yeah. what if. I, I don't have no what ifs because I know I give it 100%. Maybe, more, you know, of course, it doesn't make sense to say more than 100%. But if it was that such a thing was possible, I did it to the point where maybe it was detrimental at, at some uh, to some degree. We have to brush up. Bed, we have you know? to brush we have to brush up against the limit in order to. Yeah, man, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was walking along the red line. Yeah, that's right. But that's but that's, that's, that, yeah. that's where the gains are. Yeah, I had the gas on. The, uh, I had the accelerator down, and sometimes I mean, made needed to ease off on the corners, but <laughs> I didn't know any other way to do it. So that's the way I did it, and uh, I don't have regrets. I have lessons. People say, do you have regrets? Do you regret getting injured and you regret this? I don't have regrets. I have lessons, which I learned and I can pass on to other people. But overall, you know, regrets, I don't see the point of having regrets. Shakespeare yeah. uh, said, uh, uh, again, that, that regrets are meaningless. It's pointless, right? Yeah. And, and let's hope that Chris Cormier is not sitting somewhere in that rock or thinking exactly those thoughts that you just shared. Because he I don't was, know, I don't know yeah, if, if he is or not. He's doing well now coaching people. And, uh, you know, he said I was young and I could get a lot of women and I wanted to do that. <laughs> you know, well, well uh, you know, I, I don't know if he has regrets or not. It, it ties into what something we wanted to talk to you about and something I'm familiar with, because, again, I've coached a lot of really elite athletes and so many type guys have real difficulty re-entering normal life. Oh, yeah. I know all about that. And I mean, I, I was, first of all, I, uh, I'm a free spirit to a degree. And, and I, I like to think that I controlled my destiny. Um, only, only one time. So I did this competition. I, I did a novice competition. It was my first show that I ever did. I'd only been training for about 18 months. And I went for this novice competition and I was reasonably confident that I could win this novice competition. I wanted to win it and I wanted to go to the British finals uh, as a novice. And I like try to win the novice British. That was my goal. Anyway, I went to this novice competition and, you know, I can see now what other people could see because I can look at the pictures. I mean, I was, you know, I was like light years ahead of anyone in the contest. Um, and I went on stage, I did my pose in, I came off the stage and there was officials backstage 
One of the guys was named Ron Davis, who was the head of the English Federation. He was also a judge at the Mr. Olympia. So, I mean, the guy knew what he was talking about. And he's like, what the, who are you? Where are you from? What the hell are you doing in this novice competition? And I'm like, quite innocently, like, well, you know, I'm from here and that, and I haven't been training long, and this is my first competition. And he's like, you should be in the heavyweights. But yeah, but I don't think I'm good enough yet for the heavyweights. And literally, you know, him and the other guys just start laughing, like, not good enough. You, you're, you're probably the best heavyweight we got in the whole damn country right now. That's right after now. training 18 months? Yeah, after 18 months, you know. Um, so, I mean, I was, I was a heavyweight. I was like 210, 215. But heavyweights around then, they were probably like 220 or something average. And, you know, I was, I was in really good condition and everything and um they persuaded me again i don't regret it because it was a great experience they persuaded me to uh, join the british team two weeks later in london where there was being held the world games which is in effect a world championship and the winner of that would go to be pro um so that's the only contest that i didn't prepare for I was not, you know, 100% ready for mentally for that one. Yeah. physically. Yeah. Uh, and I was persuaded to go in. And it was a great experience. And it gave me exposure and all that good stuff. Uh, the winner was Barry DeMay, who went on to be a yeah. uh, you know, top Olympian. Second place was Matt Mendenhall, phenomenal uh, amateur from the States that probably genetically was, you know, uh, <clears throat> brilliant and never probably reached his potential for whatever reason i don't know but he got second so that was the caliber of the competition and i got seventh place out of out of 13 there so my point is throughout my whole career i controlled everything uh i even managed to control weeder because being staying in uk meant that i was not easily at disposal so, you know, if I was living in L.A., we'd a company or we'd a could call me up and say, hey, can you go here? Can you do this and do that? I was in England. You couldn't even find me, man. So uh, what you were doing. Contract, I managed to control the situation. So I left bodybuilding due to an injury, which was something totally out of my control. And I wasn't prepared for that at all. Uh, I didn't know how unprepared I was for that mentally. Um because I hadn't visualized it. I hadn't, you know, planned my exit. And it was just like, bang, you're finished. That's it. Uh, And then being in England, which was playing to my advantage because of this, I was not accessible uh, either to, to people or I was not visible or accessible to my competitors. So they could never really get a grip on me or who I was or if I had any weaknesses or if I was having a downtime or whatever because nobody knew me. I was away. You couldn't see me. All these guys were going to Gold's Gym every day. They kind of knew each other, you know, and the, the changes to psychology. So I became this enigma, this mysterious shadow that was, you know, shadows kind of dark and, and fearful. So they built that kind of uh, image in their mind. But when I retired, then I was in England and I was totally cut off from 
the, the sport and the industry and, and who I was and Mr. Olympia and all this stuff. Um, and I literally well, I, didn't know who Dorian, I was. Dorian, I think, I think the isolation is fantastic on the way up. Yeah. But once you're out of it, it's, um, you really have to know how to fill your time. Yeah. No, I really, uh, yeah, but that's what made you great that isolation. And then after that, it was like, it's like getting out of the service or something like, you know, the military. And, and Marty talks about, what do I do? You know, yeah, Marty talks about, the, it's, uh, uh, maybe a, it's not the right way to say, but it's almost like you're in a, a battle or a war. It's yeah. not, it's not physical. It is, a, you're lifting the weights, that's physical, but you're in this fucking tunnel, you're in this zone. You're, you got this goal in front of you and nothing else really exists. And um, for, for a decade. Yeah, for a decade. And then that's not there anymore. Like, what do I do? Who am I? Like, uh, I thought I had to be somebody totally different and find a new career and everything. Until you know, slowly I came to terms with this is always going to be part of me. It doesn't define me totally, but it's always going to be part of me. I'm, you know, it's, it's my history. Um, how much so, longer? Uh, a lot of stuff to try to try, uh, you know, eventually to find balance. Dorian, how much? How long? How much uh, longer did you want to go in uh, competitive bodybuilding? Well, that's a good question. I remember in 1997 starting my prep for the contest and thinking to myself, "This feels different. Yeah. It's starting to feel like a job." It's yep. starting to feel like Groundhog Day. Uh, because I didn't allow myself any slack at all or any outside interests or, or anything really beyond my family and my couple of dogs and that's it and my gym. Um, I was burning out, I think, mentally. Started to, started to see the signs. The enthusiasm was there, but it wasn't there. You know, I had this question mark starting to see, how long do you really want to do this? So that, you know, it was there anyway. It was hovering. Um, do you want to do next year after this one? I don't know. Because a lot of people ask me, uh, are you going for Lee Haney's record? And I always said, no, I'm not thinking about it. I'm just doing one year yeah. at a time. As long as I'm enjoying this and I feel there's maybe some room to make some improvement or some kind of change, then I'll do it. Um, but I was speaking mentally. Mentally, I just started to think like, is this all there is to life? Like, got to be something else. So the, the, the questions were already there. So, uh, and, and then when I got the injury and I won the contest, but I wasn't happy with the way I looked because, I mean, literally... I don't know if there's anyone else that would have done it under those circumstances. I tore my tricep tendon yep. 90, 97% off the bone three weeks before the contest. I couldn't even, I could only do cardio. I couldn't do any kind of training. Yeah. Um, I was even scared to practice my posing. Yeah. It's too hard to pop. It would just it might pop off. off. Hmm. Uh, my arm was just black uh, and blue. Um, but I'd been through this before. I had a bicep tear in 94 and I had this, moment where i just thought my whole career is over that's it man it's fucking over um and i think within 24 hours i, I fought back from that and said no look it's not over 
when do you, when did you feel yeah. that you got your got your bearings and and got on your current positive pathway? Uh, it's a long story, Marty, because uh, I almost um, I had a I had a nutrition company, but I had a business partner that was running that, so I just needed to do the promotions on that. And one thing that never changed is I always love to train. So I never during this whole period, and there was a period of like really quite a deep clinical depression. You know, thanks God I had the gym and I never, never stopped training. That was my only connection to something positive and going to the gym and training and pushing myself. And um, uh, it's, a can we it's a stress reliever. It's a stress reliever. You needed can that. We, that was, yeah, yeah that was Can we time. pause, Marty? Sorry, can we pause? I got a call and uh, yeah, man. Uh, it's a security. Hold on. Oh, do you got a pen? I think he would have gone maybe another year, maybe. You know, you know, the uh, thing sorry, is, too. Sorry, it rang out, but we can cut this bit out, I guess, if we're not live. And if we're live, this is the reality. The yeah, reality. that's all right. It's all right. Man. Um, we're just, so we're just happy to have you here. Yeah. You know, it's uh, the gym helped me maybe maybe even saved my life you know at, at points i was having suicidal thoughts yeah, this, this is this is in this yeah. is in birmingham right this is still... yeah you know what happened is because i'm an extreme uh character i suppose i you know let's talk about the anabolics that's involved um i always told myself this is a professional tool that i'm using because i'm competing and it's necessary and when I'm not competing, I won't use it anymore. Right. So why? I went from using, you know, fairly substantial doses as you do as a professional bodybuilder to like just nothing. Yeah. I just stopped. And that was a that was a huge mistake. And I didn't have anyone really to advise me on that. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have doctors that are, you know, uh, specialize in anabolics and athletes and stuff like that you, you got now and all this kind of stuff. He had a couple of books and, there were, you know, um, there, there were, I went to see an endocrinologist and I had a chat with him and he said, Dorian, you know, you probably know more about this than I do. I was like, this is a great fucking help. Yeah. It's comforting. You know? Yeah. So I went from, you know, having this high hormone level to having a hormone level of a, of a girl probably. And this is such a hormone imbalance. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, and this mentally impacts you. Um, then, you know, I had a retirement from this, this sport, which is, you know, if that was just on its own, that would be tough. Um, and then I had to face up to problems in my marriage that I kind of swept under the table because I was competing and I didn't want to address it. And I didn't, you know, uh, all that kind of stuff. Now it all came you know, hitting me in the face because I had time to think about it and focus on it now. And I had a death of somebody very close to me. And all this happened within like a year. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it was like the perfect storm for, uh, for a depression. And uh, we know what the cure for depression is. Party. Well, 
Sorry? Party. Well, that's where I got to the end. You know, I was like, okay, so (laughs) I can't do this sport anymore that I was doing, but this sport was very limiting. And now I can do what I want to do. I got time, I got free time and everything, and then I became single, so... You're probably traveling, going to all the shows and stuff too, right? I was traveling, going to the shows and doing promoting. And then my friend Chris introduced me to a whole world of (laughs) bodies around bodybuilding that I didn't even know existed. If I did, I wouldn't have been going there anyway. Um, And, uh, you know, then I was off and running, doing on my own. So, you know, it became like another... Another ego trip, like, you know, extreme parties. How many women can you bag? And, you know, it's like collecting trophies again. And you are the six-time Mr. Olympia. Yeah, it opens a lot of doors. <laughs> just, just, yeah, I'm just, you know, just mentioning, you know. Dorian, you know, how was it? Uh, every, every nightclub in the world that I went to. Hello, come in. The, the security <laughs> on the door, they were, you know, they were... They were from the gym, right? They knew who I was. So I got VIP yeah. everywhere I went. And, yes, uh, yeah. you know, uh, that sounds like there might have, like, been some uh, alcohol, might have been some alcohol involved. Might have been some alcohol and recreational drugs and all <laughs> yeah. that stuff. Yeah, for sure, man. Yeah. Um, what was it when you started this? I just went from one extreme to the mm-hmm. other extreme in order to get to the middle at some point. Like well, you're, an extreme, you're, you're an extreme personality. Well, you wouldn't be wanting to be the best in the world at anything. Exactly. Unless you're an extreme uh, personality. I mean, why would you? So, you know, whether it's a sport or a fucking, I don't know why guys want to be billionaires. I don't understand it. Maybe I do. problems, huh? You know, like, you know, you got a few million. How much can you spend? Like, why do you want to be a billionaire? But there's something that drives them. Yeah. uh, as it did with me in, in bodybuilding. I want to ask you, though, uh, when when you retired unexpectedly and you went off all the anabolics and everything, and you see this world-class physique, the best physique in the world, just start to slowly melt away. I mean, that had to play on your mind, too. Or didn't you care so much because that was, in the past, that was your tool that you used to get to this point. Now you're moving on. I probably didn't care as much as people might imagine that I did because I was always very removed from my body. It wasn't me. It wasn't my body. It was a project. It was a sculpture. It was a, something I was working on. It wasn't, I, I mean, I was always covered up uh, in the gym and everywhere I went. My training partner trained with me all year round. He would never see anything beyond my forearms until like four weeks before the Mr. Olympia. Uh, 19 inch forearms. Yeah. So I wouldn't be, uh, I wasn't training to, to look great on the beach and impress other people. It was way beyond that. It was a project. So, uh, I didn't care so much. Uh, and eventually, you know, I realized I need to go on to um, a small dose of testosterone, like a replacement amount because it wasn't bouncing back. Yeah. So I think it was about 18 months before I twigged like, oh, man. this is what you got to do. You know, it was a dark, it was a dark period. I could tell you. Oh yeah. Now, are you, you're still in Birmingham. Yeah. At that point. At that point. You uh, yeah, at that point, but I was 
again, now because of my uh, commitments to do appearances and stuff like that, um, I didn't, um, I mean, I could have done, I could have like uh, some people close to me, like Steve Weinberger and, and, and Jim Mannion from the MPC. They're like, well, you know, you can still guest pose and, and you know, be involved and make money. And I'm like, I don't want to guest pose. I don't look good. I would have been good enough to guest pose, but for me, it was like damaged goods. Like the tricep no. was torn. The bicep yeah. was torn. No, 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 I just, no, I just no, didn't no, want to. No. Uh, I did the Mr. Olympia, and um, maybe I did a couple of guest appearances after that, like immediately after the Olympia, within a few weeks. After that, uh, I never appeared on stage again, like uh, as a bodybuilder with my with my clothes on. Do you miss it? Um, did I miss being on stage? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a rush that you get when you, and, and then it was even more extreme because you didn't have the internet, right? You just had the magazines. Yeah. Um, so there was something more of a like mythical status yeah. about the top bodybuilders that when they're coming to town, like everybody's freaking, everybody's buying a ticket because this is the chance you get to see and probably much more so in my case because I was this mysterious guy from England that was fucking bigger than everybody else. And, uh, you know, uh, Jim Mannion, again, he told me, like, um, you know, I guess posed at his show a few times. And he said, look, when you came, I sold out so quick. Yeah. And now I can have six of the top Olympians there. I have six of the guys. I still don't sell out so quick as I did when you were there because – it's like the demand is there because they don't get to see you. There's nothing on the internet. There's just a magazine and there's just a picture in the magazine. So the demand was huge and I could have uh, capitalized on that, but I just, I just didn't feel like I was that guy anymore. And that goes along with that personality of, okay, now it's done. I did it. Yeah, It's black or it's white. Yep. That's, that's it. You know, I've learned now that life isn't black and white. Is all different shades, and nothing is totally good, and nothing's totally bad. Um, but that comes from life experience. I was a young guy then, and uh, I, I went into bodybuilding at 21, 20, 21 years of age. And um, I was great at what I did, but I didn't know too much about anything else apart from what I was quite a good reader. I was quite a um, keen reader. So uh, I educated myself a little bit through reading, but nothing can beat life experience, really. And you came at just the right time, too, because I heard you talk about it before. Had you come along later with the Internet and all that, you wouldn't have been able to have all that mystique because everybody has a cell phone camera and all that. You'd have been all over the place. You got you, you know, you to do it, right? And I wouldn't know any different if that's the world I was born into. Yeah. Um, so it will be difficult. It wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be the shadow, right? Because you have to almost right. self-publish yourself where then the only avenue to reach the public was through the magazines and you can only get in the magazines if you win some contests. So that was the route. Now you don't even need to do a contest. You can have your own channel and build your own following and all that stuff. There's a lot of people out there making a very good living from the sport uh, who never compete and never going to compete. Yeah. Also, Dorian, I think that the point that you made is that they're stripping away the whole idea that bodybuilding is a journey of self-discovery by having coaches. 
So yeah. they're I mean, not that, even they're not even thinking for themselves anymore. They're having others think. That that was them. why bodybuilding was almost tailor made for me, um, because I'm very much an individual, and uh, I, I wanted to be. Yeah, I did everything myself. I did planned my own nutrition, my own anabolic cycles, my own training. I, I kept diaries every workout i've got written down every single workouts from 1983 to 1997 uh all the, any changes in diet and supplements and all all this stuff so it was a science I, experiment yeah it was it was, it was a, my own it was my own project it was a and science experiment and i'm not saying i'm not saying i, I never learned anything from anybody because i would learn from whoever i could but ultimately who made the decision of what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it was me. And, 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 also, and also did it get the desired result? You were result driven. Yeah. And uh, if I won, if I succeeded, that would be down to me. Yeah. If I lost, that would be down to me. There would be no excuses, nobody to blame. Um, I, I just, I'm not a team player, you know, and I didn't understand it when, people start to have coaches. I think the first guy, I remember talking to Flex Wheeler and I, he had a nutritionist and I don't know if he had a coach or something like that. And I asked, he had, Char he had Charles Glass working with him. Like, what, what is this? And uh, he's like, well, you know, I, I came from martial arts and I had a coach and at school we have coaches for football or whatever. And it's kind of normal. Uh, so he took that and, Put it into bodybuilding where for me bodybuilding was a very individual pursuit and uh, Marty now, talks about it no no it's not no it's the you know team whatever you know yeah you yeah it's the coach and, and uh, marty talks about it in purpose purposeful primitive he yeah, says the, you know yeah, i remember that it was a great book that was uh, that was your advantage. You were off being an individual, while the other guys were mostly out of Southern California, hanging out together and kind of doing the same things nutritionally yeah. and everything. So they were all kind of the same, but you were off doing your own thing, experimenting, uh, finding what really worked best for you. And I wasn't too influenced by uh, other people because I didn't see them. I, I remember. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, it was around late 80s, so I think I was training for the British Championship. And um, I was working on opening my little gym, this temple gym. So, you know, it was like upside down painting and this and that, knocking walls down. So I was going to another gym in Birmingham to train. It was called the Forum Gym. And uh, it was a bodybuilding gym, but it was also uh, quite a well-known powerlifting gym and strongman gym. Uh, and Bill Kazmaier used to come over there and stay yeah. a couple of months, train there and do, you know, do his appearances and seminars and stuff, whatever he's doing in the UK. That was his base. So I was training in there and Bill was asking the owner, who the fuck is that kid over there? Like, <laughs> you know, yeah. he's like, oh, he's a bodybuilder. He's training for a British championship. It's like, fuck, man, that kid's strong. And, um, he came and talked to me. He's like, oh, you're lifting some great weights for a bodybuilder. I was like, really? Don't everybody do this? You know? Like, <laughs> like, oh, man. 
Why is it a mistake yeah. for fucking pussies? They're pumping some light weights and was like, well, I don't know, man. This is the way I do it. This, you know. <laughs> so I don't know what animals is doing. I just read the magazines and I assume they're all like training all out. And you know, it's like, no, man, it's not. It's not the case. So you reestablished the relationship between strength and muscle size. You you figured out that in order to get massively bigger, you needed to get massively stronger. And you yeah, did. I was saying this the other day. I was doing an interview with somebody. I'm look, look. You can take any subject and make it as complex as you want, or as simple as you want. I try to make things simple so people can understand. The more weight you lift, not for two or three reps, it's a different story. Then you're getting like nervous system adaptation, and and you're not necessarily getting bigger. You could get stronger without getting more volume. But if you're doing like eight to twelve reps or something like that, time under tension. 40 seconds 60 seconds the more weight you lift the bigger the muscles are going to be that lift up weight that's fucking simple man and if you're if you're punching 200 pounds today for eight reps and you're doing that same weight in a 12 months time then you're going to look the same there's, that's there's right. no way around that there's no way around that's that right. you know I, I go in the gym and i see people and they're doing the same shit they were doing 12 months ago or two years ago and they're wondering why Nothing changed. If you want to maintain, you got physique that you're happy with and you want to maintain, great. But if you're saying to yourself, I want to get bigger, then fuck, man. If you, you know, whatever you're doing in 12 months didn't work, why is it going to work in the next 12 months? Again, that nobody wants to get bigger. They, they, they want to increase their bench press 100 pounds, but they want to be able to fit in their designer jeans. And it doesn't work that way. No. You, you, if, you, if you want to get significantly bigger, you have to gain lean muscle mass. You've got to get more muscular firepower. Exactly. That, that's why I kept notes. I kept notes. This is what I did last week. I can look in my book what I did last week on chest or back or leg, whatever. Yeah, very that's important. what I did last week. I did bench over rows for 300 pounds for eight reps. Fuck, today I got to do nine or 10. Yeah. That's my goal for today. That's what my whole day revolves around is getting that, hitting that number or putting Extra five rep. pounds in the bar or something. That, that, I mean, that's, to, what your, to, that's what your whole life revolves around. Yeah, to a degree, because you can't do this linearly forever, obviously. <laughs> I mean, strength and powerlifters probably know that better than bodybuilders. You got to, you know, maybe for five or six weeks, you can go balls out, going to failure and pushing the weights and pushing the reps. And then you need to back off for a couple of weeks, uh, which I wasn't terribly good at. But that's what I tell people now. That's the best thing to do. Go light for a couple of weeks, maintain and get ready for another push. Yeah. Yes. And, and you would also drive your body weight upward in the off season. Yeah. Well, that is just like normal people don't want to hear that. And it's just, it's a tough lesson. It's like, if you want to get significantly stronger, you're going to have to get larger. And yeah. it falls, I mean, it falls you on can't get ears. stronger with doing like, uh, like two bit. or three reps. You probably get in more recruitment, more fiber recruitment, and not necessarily get bigger to, to a degree. I mean, if you're a fighter, that wants to get stronger or doesn't yeah. want to put on the extra muscle mass, which is going to put you into a higher weight category where you're going to be at a disadvantage. You can do some very low rep 
power stuff. However, if you want to increase, if you have a 15 inch arm and you want a 17 inch arm, you better be coming at once. Yeah, slowly, slowly. I mean, you, you know, don't try to like put 20 pounds on the bar overnight or one week, but just if you can do one rep extra each workout and then after a couple of weeks, you're going to put five pounds on the bar and you do this and, and you, you get these little increments, reasonable increments that are achievable. By the end of the year, it all adds up to a big, a big, uh, big change. People used to laugh at me when, when you know, when I was first starting out, because I get like the smallest little discs in the gym and put them on the bar where everyone wanted to go from like, you know, squatting three 45s a side to four. Like it's no. too much, a huge jump. Just put the little discs on and do that. And then the next one, and the next one, you'll get there. But increments, slow increments. Yeah. Tiny. And, you know, I was just thinking that that personality of that, it's a power building or whatever and being the shadow and being in the hardcore gym, that's what appealed to us. And that's what got you respect in the powerlifting community. So if you went into our gym and you and everybody was like, oh, Sean Ray's coming in. And no offense yeah. to Sean Ray, but it's a yeah. whole different mindset. And if they were like, well, Dorian's coming in, we would all be like, hell yeah, he's legit. Well, I, I was honored that I think I was the only bodybuilder that was in Marty's book, which was really yeah. about, about, about strength, yeah. athletes. And I always admired uh bodybuilders who were strong and they had a different look yeah rugged right. thick yeah no tom platts uh mike menser casey viator tim baltrap reg, reg uh, park reg park yeah they, they all looked powerful yeah and the muscle has a different quality uh something that's lost a little bit in the photos and videos, especially from the 90s where, you know, they don't have the technology that we've got now. But I literally used to make people that were standing next to me look soft, even though they're in condition, because my muscles were way, they had a look that was way denser. They, you know, they even termed this term grainy, yeah, which, which was like having very thin skin, low body fat, but this density of muscle that looked powerful and somehow it made people look soft next to me because their muscles look like a little bit like balloons. Yeah, right. very full and round, but somehow they look soft. They didn't look soft on their own. Right. But when they stood next to me, they, they had the contrast made them look a little soft. Yeah. That's, Dorian, the same, did that that's the same point Rich Salky made when he came on our show. A pro, another pro bodybuilder about six weeks ago. He said yeah. Dorian had the grainy look that I've never seen yeah. in anyone else. People freaked out when they saw you in person. They were like, "What? You know, what is that?" You yeah, in, in person, uh, I believe, and you know, people that are that were there is that you had to see me really in person to get to understand that. So you, you know, you get these channels now on YouTube and everything, which is you know, it's all good fun comparing people and pictures and videos um but it's not like the the live thing it's not the same yeah where, where, where did you um sorry where did you get the uh the heavy duty hit training from where did that originate for for you was it arthur jones uh, it, was, uh, it, it was mensa i saw mensa in the magazines and then like through mensa 
I discovered where Mensa got his philosophy from, which was from Arthur Jones. So then I bought the Nautilus books and uh, devoured anything I could by Arthur yeah. Jones. And I understood his machines. So when I was able to open a gym, I mean, I won the British Championship when I was 24. And uh, it was huge. It, it's, it's not like today when like was people like from all over the country going to the British Championship. There was buses going from all the gyms. It was like a football match in there. There was, there was air horns blowing. There was people were going crazy. Um, you know, so I'm in this atmosphere, thousands of people going crazy. I'm British champion. I'm the best bodybuilder in the, in the country. I got my trophy. I go home. I go home. I got a, I got a flat, or we call it a flat in England apartment, on a you know, council estate, which is like a project with like no carpet on the floor. I don't have a car. I got no money. I'm broke still, but I'm British champion, you know, and, and there's no fucking newspaper people outside my place. There's no TV. There's no nothing. Um, no, weeder con no weeder contract. Nothing, man. So, I, you know, I, I still had nothing. I was just working security on the doors uh, and stuff like that. And fortunately, um, actually, two people approached me with the same idea. Um, and... The, Funnily enough, they both said the same thing to me. They said, you got this British championship. I want to open a gym with you. I'll pay for all the equipment. You choose whatever you want, like your wish list of equipment. And this is mid-80s in England. So gyms are a new thing. And if you're you know, business savvy, you could see that that would be a good business, right? Um, you can get all the equipment. I'll pay for everything. You run the gym. Uh We'll pay the bills and then we'll split the profit 50-50. And of course, it's all cash. And two people said exactly the same thing to me. Good deal. Yeah, that, but what they said to me, and both, funnily enough, both said the same thing. It's a cash business and I'm not going to be there. And if you want to hide money and steal money from me, you can. But something about you, I know you're never going to do that. I know you're never going to steal a penny from me. And both guys said the same thing. So something about my personality and my energy that they picked up on. Um, and of course, I never did uh, steal a penny from them. But I was able to get the gym. And I, I met a guy that was great at making machines. And I said, I want these Nautilus machines. So he went to a gym that was in the Isle of Man. It's a small island off england that's like a tax haven and there was a nautilus gym there with all the nautilus equipment so he went there i don't know how he managed it but he measured everything up he took pictures <laughs> and he built exact replica of the nautilus machines for me so i had the pullover machine i had the bicep machine i had the tricep machine the leg extension and the leg curl and uh still to this day man you can't beat those the pullover machine pull that your favorite it's 180 degrees of movement, no bicep involvement. It, it's, it's an amazing piece of equipment. And you, it, they're getting popular again now and getting valuable. People are selling their old secondhand ones that like people are throwing them out before. Uh, now they're valuable just because I was using it and promoting them. And, you know, I didn't get anything for that. It was just being honest that I really think they're great 
not all the Nautilus pieces, but a lot of them are great, really great pieces. Dorian, I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, I wrote an article when I talked about how similar your training was to the power immortal Ed Cohn. Yeah, I met Ed and, a few times as well. Yeah. yeah. And, and my point was, is that really, when you look at it, you didn't just w walk into the gym, load the bar to 435, and do six positive reps before Leroy steps in and gives you two force reps. Oh. You had to go 135, 225, 275. Yeah, physically, mentally, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it wasn't one set to failure with negatives, which was the original Jones theme. One set uh, to failure plus four straps yeah. plus negative. Right? So Jones's approach was um, a whole body workout. Correct. But Basically, again, that's how he set up the Nautilus gyms. You had a line of equipment, I don't know, yep. like, like 10 pieces or something. And you would do one set to failure with negatives on each piece of equipment and the whole body would cover it. And it would be like two or three times a week, uh, right. whole body workouts. Um, my, my point was in the article is that the way that, that Cone and you trained is that the really the significant difference was you were essentially doing power training with forced reps yeah and it's very similar to what cone was doing and you would work up to one you didn't do five sets of five or eight sets of three you worked up to one big set put it all out there moved on to the next exercise yeah that's that the one that's yeah that's and, the and, yeah and that's essentially the way that, that power lifters train but we didn't do the forced reps but i thought it was interesting that at the time, and the title of the article was, the world's strongest man and the world's best built man essentially train the same. Uh, probably fairly infrequently as well. Oh, you, yeah, yeah, oh, exactly. Uh, but each, each major lift gets hit once a week. Yeah, so it's pretty much the same. Yeah, uh, recovery. Um, you gotta be recovered. You gotta, you you gotta overload. You know, muscle growth is just a response to a stress, an unusual stress that the body can't handle. So it needs to adapt to that stress by, in this case, becoming bigger and, uh, and stronger. So you have to have a stress that the body's not used to, but then you have to recover from that stress before overcompensation could take place. And this is what, you know, these are the principles that I learned from Arthur Jones. Uh, I didn't necessarily agree that that whole body workout would be ideal for a competitive bodybuilder. Maybe for the average person, it's fine, yeah. Um, well, but a competitive bodybuilder, you know, you've got to do something for the lateral head of the deltoid, the rear deltoid. You've got different aspects of the muscle that you need to develop where you're not really going to do that with one exercise per muscle group. I, I worked out the math on how many sets a week Schwarzenegger was doing at his peak. He was over 700. Well, I think the approach of bodybuilders in the seventies was different. I would, no, no. I would, I would, uh, I would guess that people like Arnold and Franco and those guys, they were training less frequently and heavy in the off season. I mean, I've seen pictures of Arnold doing a curl on stage with two twenty, right. benching five hundred. Yeah, so they were doing more power heavier training, probably less frequently in the off season, building the muscle size. And then they were doing volume 
maybe training twice a day, you know, as a way of burning calories whilst right. maintaining that muscle mass. So instead of doing, instead of doing intense weight training to build the muscle and then doing cardio to burn more calories and lose the body fat, they were using the weight training as a kind of cardio at the same time. So that's what was going on. I don't think anyone built much muscle training six times a week, twice a day. They were maintaining with that and they were burning the body fat by just, yeah. you know, using, using the energy. Yeah, we always had a theory, Marty and I and JP, that Arnold built his size early. Yeah. And then he sort of just yeah. did what you said, where they whittled it down. He kept that size and gained some quality to his muscle, but he never really got that much bigger from when that's, he... That's you know, what I believe. I don't think anyone can train six times a week, twice a day and build muscle. You, <laughs> no. you, just, you just can't recover from it, you know? But, but, as, but we put it in every magazine with every bodybuilder in every issue. We all did um, it. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and, every, and all these four kids all over the country are trying to follow this. And, yeah. you know, they got uh, yes. whatever, whoever. Uh, I, hey, I, Marty, I, I, I remember. I might have tried it for a week, but <laughs> what was my advantage was that I was analytical. I wrote everything down. And I noticed if I increased my workouts past a certain point, I would just plateau i would get yeah. nowhere and then when i cut it back hey presto start growing again so yeah. you know it didn't take me long to learn the lesson and once i learned it i didn't need to learn it again i was just i'm with it so yeah um, i remember I reading these week, i never got to be mr olympia marty i remember reading some of dorian's articles in uh, muscle and fitness and marty you probably wrote them but um the contrast because like we were just talking about, you know, we, we, we all kind of started off with volume training. I started reading what Doreen was doing and I went, thank God I can cut it back. I don't have to live in the gym and it just makes so much more sense. And I started doing oh, it. This is, this is you as a kid. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you're, re you're reading that, you're trying to follow Arnold's bicep. <laughs> yeah. It's like, just like he's saying two I mean, hours. <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't get the gains. I couldn't get the strength. I felt like I was never recovered, but I switched to, to, uh, to his style of training and, you know, like power training and, uh, less, less frequently. And I, that's the best gains I ever got in my life. I mean, that's the only thing that really you worked. You read in the magazine and you admire these people so much. Yeah. You do whatever even they though say. It's not working. Even though it's not working, you still you think that you still doing do it, it, right? Because you think, well, surely Arnold says this works. It's got to fucking work. Yeah, what's keep, wrong you know, with me? Keep persisting. <laughs> One day it'll work. Yeah, no, I just, right. I, I just, I just don't want it bad enough. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> yeah. right. You got, maybe you should do twenty-five <laughs> sets. I got to psych up more. Here's the thing. So uh, you know, the Weeder magazines—they were great because they kind of, they, they, there was no real great information in there. No, well, they kind of, in my mind, they they glamorized bodybuilding. Yeah, they made it look more. It made it look cooler, right? Um, great photos. Great photos. The, the real the real information was in magazines like Iron Man, the little Iron yeah. Man magazines. They yeah. they were the best. And the thing is, like I used to read the Weeder magazines, and it used to say, okay, beginner's routine. It was like three or four times a week. Intermediate routine was like more volume, and it was like five times a week advanced routine six times a week 
But that's the absolute opposite of what you should be doing because exactly. when you're a beginner, you're able to recover more easily because you're not able to exert that much force. Right. So if you're beginning, you're a beginner and you're squatting 150 pounds for 10 reps, years later you're squatting 400 pounds, let's say, <clears throat> but so your legs are bigger, uh, all the muscles that are working are bigger, but your nervous system is the same nervous system you had when you started. It hasn't changed. So it's much easier to overtrain when you're advanced. So when you're advanced, you should consider that you should probably be doing less than you were doing when you're a beginner. And, you know, but of course, then we have the anabolics that come into play that help that recovery ability, which lets a lot of people get away with uh, training less than ideally. But even if you're using anabolics, why not train ideally as well and get the, the most out of everything? Well, you're not going to, uh, optimally, we want a 102% effort when a muscle is 100% recovered. There's no point exerting 102% when the muscle is 78% recovered. You're if, just looking for injury. The or, process has to take place first before the growth can happen. It doesn't happen the other way around. Right. So if you're going in, and you're working out before you're recovered, no growth can take place because you don't have allowed time for that to happen. That's right. the process, stimulus, recovery, overcompensation. That's the order that it goes in. You, How do you, you gave get, an analogy about sandpaper. Yeah, that, I like that one. Like, yeah. uh, so if you get a <clears throat> piece of sandpaper and rub it on your palm until it gets all red and a bit bloody, if you leave it, as this is an unusual stress, the body overcompensates by making the skin a little thicker to protect itself from that stress in the future. So if you allow enough time to pass, it'll rebuild and it'll be a little bit thicker, a little bit stronger than it was originally. But if you rub it with a sandpaper and it's still a little bit red, it hasn't recovered properly, it hasn't healed properly, and you go and rub it again, you just end up with a bloody hand and not yeah. uh, and no progress. Yeah. Do you that think guy, to be on a t-shirt? <laughs> do you think if the guys today trained like you trained, they would look differently? They would have yes. more of a great. They would have a different look because now you've got guys. It's not just the training. I think it's a combination of the training, uh, an approach with the, the performance enhancing stuff and the diet. Um, nobody's really trying to get to that kind of conditioning that was generally seen in the 90s. And guys it's not are coming in now. Yeah. Guys are coming in an okay shape. They're coming in round and fallen okay, but it's not what I personally consider to be contest shape. I consider that to be like I'd like to look like that like 6 weeks out from the show. Mm -hmm. What what do you attribute that to? Combination of those factors. Um and um Maybe guys not really wanting to push the envelope because there's there is an injury risk there at some point. They want to avoid that. They want to have a long career. Um, so they're working with lighter weights and uh, pumping and more volume. Um, they also also seem to be using purposely shortened rep strokes. I see a lot of that. They yeah. Kind of get in the get in the get in the middle of the rep and up, 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 
and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. Pum, 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 pum. Yeah, short, short reps. I always like to do full range, uh, right. full range on all, all the exercises. Um, so it, it was a different approach. But guys were doing like half reps. I do half reps at the end of the set sometimes. Yeah, right. mm-hmm. kind of a burnout. If it's an, an exercise where I couldn't get any assistance from my training partner, like bent over barbell rows, you know, I, I, maybe I couldn't get it right into the waist, but I could get it three quarters of the way up and then I could get it half of the way up. I would do a burnout at the end like yeah. that. I'd like to start with the full range reps. Because um, you can't so really like, get a spot on that exercise. So. No, certain exercises you can't get a spot. It's just not practical. Yeah. So you go to failure um, and then you can do some partial reps at the end of the set to, you know, just to take a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I'm not... I'm known for the guy, the high intensity guy, but I don't believe in doing like three forced reps and three negatives or something. It's just yeah. it's like one or two at the end of the rep just to get through the weak, whatever the sticking point is. There's always a weak point in the range of motion to get through that and maybe one or two with a little bit of assistance. And occasionally uh, on really, you can only really do it safely on machine exercises to do some extra negative reps where you get it to the top and then right. you know, still got power to lower a couple more down. But you should be really trying to control that negative all the time where people think in terms of, you know, I've lifted it and boom, just drop it through the negative. They're missing, you know, arguably the most important part of the rep. You are preaching to the choir. That is part of our, we're, again, we're elite power lifters, but that's what, what we stress. Everybody is throwing away the negative. Yeah. We, we embrace the negative. Let's, we make the negative high art. Yeah. Right. Really? Control yeah. it down. Like, yes. yes. It's 50%. That. That's where all the growth and power is. That's where all the position, that's how you coil yeah. for the concentric. Yeah, and I think more damage is occurring to the muscle fibers on the negative if you control it. And, it's the, you know, it's the damage that's repaired that creates the growth at the end of the day. And again, the, the whole strategy, and, and you go to any commercial gym and what do you hear? Everybody's dropping their damn deadlifts. That drives me insane, right? Yeah, some, well, some guy with, with 405 and he's got to drop all five reps. I am so strong. Look at me, four yeah, plates yeah. on each side. And it's like, just shut up. If in our day, Dorian, if you purposely drop deadlifts in Hugh Cassidy's gym or Mark Chalet's gym, you get your ass beat. Yeah, well, it's a different day, man. I mean, the whole gym environment is not the same. I mean, it was much nah, more. I know it. It was a much more macho, masculine yep. uh, uh, atmosphere and place <laughs> than it is now. Now, now it's, you know, it's like, I don't know, they're not gyms the yeah. fitness centers or health clubs or whatever they you know, I don't, I don't consider them to be really gyms. And um, you got these places now where they don't want big guys in there. They don't want bodybuilders. They don't want powerlifters, which is ironic because without us, there would be no gym industry. Um, but also also at those facilities, there's no gains. Yeah. Nobody's making any progress. They're all just showing up and they're going through the same routine, using the same intensities at the same time of day, doing the same stuff and expecting different results. And it's not fair. I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Einstein, but 
somebody said that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different outcome. Yeah, that's right. That's if you're doing right. something in the gym and you, you know, if you want to, to, to gain, you want to get bigger, you want to get stronger, and you're doing something for a month and there's zero, zero results, <laughs> why would there be any results the next month? Right. Doing the same change, thing. Change it's time, something. Time to have a little think about what you can change. Change something. Change yeah. something. We beg of you. Yeah. Dorian and Marty, we beg of you. Change yeah, something, please. please. <laughs> I hate to see people wasting their time, but you know, I had my own do. gym. I had my own gym, right? So I, I got the experience of, in my own gym, and I'm Mr. Olympia. Sometimes, you know, not when I'm working out because I'd be in my own world, but sometimes I'd be in a gym. I'm like, hey, do you mind if I just show you something like it'll make this much better? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so do like this, do like. Oh wow, man, fuck yeah. That's much better. I feel that much better. Oh, thank you so much. I come back the next week. The guy's doing yeah. what he was doing before. <laughs> <Didn't really pass. laughs> in, the end, in the end, I was just like, you know what? I, I'm not going to waste my time here. I'm done. I am done giving out free advice. Next time you want, want advice, give me $100 first. Well, yeah. was that, see, he can give out the free advice. We talked about this on another podcast. If if Jim or I, or if they didn't know who you were, Marty, they'd tell you to go after yourself. <laughs> what do you know? Get out of here. Yeah, I've tried. Well, they, you know, they'd listen to me, but the way I showed them to do it was much harder. Mm -hmm. and, oh, uh, right. So they went back to doing the easy way and getting no results. Yeah. Oh. And just uh, to touch on the way the gyms have changed, when Marty and I lifted at Gold's Gym in Wheaton, Maryland, it was the only Gold's Gym in the area. It was a special place. There was one cardio machine, and it was an old broken-down bike in the corner. You remember that, yeah, Marty? That yeah, was yeah. it. It That's was all free weights and some machines. And the way things have changed, now you're walking to those places, and it's all cardio and a little bit of weights. Yeah, you know? we, we used to have one. It was called Tenturi. It's like it's almost like a home exercise bike that has a, you know, the wheel that goes around, and it had like a belt that just you need to tighten up to create resistance on the, on the flywheel. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was it, man. That's what I used for my for my contest. It was good enough at the start. Hey, Dorian, in your in your blood and guts video, they got a little shot of you. You're like warming up on the exercise bike. Yeah, you look like one of those bears in the Moscow circus, right? Yeah, a little. little <laughs> it does, yeah. <laughs> Too big for the bike, right? Yeah. Oh my God, you're crushing. Well, look, you exceeded the weight capacity for sure. <laughs> What was your heaviest yeah. body weight ever? What was your heaviest body weight ever? Uh, around did, 310. Did you, hit, you got to 310. No kidding. 310, man. man. I, I got some pictures and I look at them and I'm like, that's crazy. And uh, it wasn't comfortable, man. I didn't feel no, good. How could it be? How could it be? How tall uh, are you? I couldn't, I couldn't tie my own shoelaces. You know? Yeah. 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 That's, yeah. Yep. 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 I mean, I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm like 230 now. Yeah. How tall I, are you? Five, I can do five, stuff. Five, I can do. I can do things. You know. Not only yeah, that, yeah. I, can get, I can get clothes off the rack. So, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the young kids they want to ask you, "Oh, you lost all that size, and don't you feel bad?" I'm like, they, they don't get no. it. Like, no, I feel no. good. Like that was then. This is yeah. now. I don't want to be fucking sixty years old and three hundred pounds. Um, why would I want to do that? It's very unhealthy to start with. 
and just impractical. Like, why? You know, I'm not a kid anymore. So I do, I train for because they want to be 300 for my pounds. They want to be 300 pounds and, and walk around and scare the hell out of all their friends. Yeah, that's. I mean, cool if that's what you want, but yeah, uh, I need to be. Uh, you know, I need to be able to run around and play with my grandkids in 10 years time hopefully mm. you know i need to be able to hike up the mountains and uh ride my bike and go swimming and uh not being getting out of bed in the morning with pain in my joints and, and, having a bad back so, and all that stuff so many of the top guys as soon as their career is over they quit they quit training they get bad eating and all of a sudden they just completely disintegrate I, don't, I just gotta, don't understand that. I don't get you it. You got to fight against that, man. You got to fight against that. Right? I, love well, to, they, I love to train, man. I love to do. Uh, well, you know. I think that's the difference. I think a lot of people are adulation junkies, right? Yeah. They, they they do it for the applause. They do it for the attention. Uh, we don't. We you're we never going to go the extra mile if that's your motivation, right? If that's your motivation, you're not going to go into the zone of real discomfort you're not gonna find your uh, physical limits because your physical limits is dictated by your mental limits and you have the true passion it's a matter of motivation you know it's a matter they, of motivation. They, need, they need they need people they need people right they i don't care man. I, I don't care if the gym's empty uh, that's i'm gonna preferable what i, what I want to do and uh, as i said you know i've, I've tried i've been to even CrossFit classes and different things and Pilates and yoga, like physical exercises, physical exercise and whatever works for you. I think that's great. You know, playing fucking tennis or kicking a ball. It's all good, man. I mean, it's, you know, uh, keeping your body and your mind in shape is, uh, is a mission. And like, I, I see life like kind of like a warrior, you know, you got to be fucking in shape, man. <laughs> To take the knocks and blows of life uh, when they come along. Yeah. And you, you also you also have to make age adjustments. You, yes. You, you, you have to. You you can't be comparing your sixty or seventy year old self to your thirty five year old self. It's you know if you can just improve, you can always improve on what you were last week, and yeah. that's enough. Yeah, improve on something like. Uh, when I went to yoga at first, I mean, just to stand on one leg and balance, I was falling over. I couldn't do it. Yep. Um, but I didn't care. I was just like, great, that's something I can improve on then. Where I couldn't improve on my, uh, you know, incline bent over road <laughs> or something like that. You know? uh, There's no way. I mean, I was, I was one arm rowing 210 pound dumbbells and bent rowing 440 and all this stuff. It's great. I'm really happy that I got this on tape, you know. Yeah. Because even I was like, <laughs> wow, look at that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I can look back and say, hey, you know, that I really did that. And it, it, it could be that I didn't make that tape because it wasn't, cameras weren't around then. We had to rent that camera from somewhere and to get that because, you know, people were making movies back then. But whenever I saw them, I thought, it's so disappointing. This is fucking bullshit. Surely they don't train. talking. Me. But it, the thing was, it was made by a production company. Yeah. So they're making it from their perspective. They want the right angle. They want the right lighting. They want to do 10 takes. So there's no way you're going to get the reality doing that. So 
I got uh, Kevin Horton, who took the now famous black and white pictures. And I said, Kev, can you like rent a film camera and come in the gym? And I want you to film my workouts as best as you can. I want you to get the weights in there. I want you to get, you know, everything in there. But I don't want to fucking talk to you, man. I don't, I don't even know you're there because I don't want to be interrupted. I want to. I want people to see what I really do in real time. And uh, that's what we got. And was the first person to do that because uh, in the past they were trying to get, you know, yeah. like uh, movie quality lighting and angles and all this stuff. So you, you can't get the genuine feel like that. And didn't you wrote it in black and white? You changed it to black and white. Yeah, right? we filmed it in color. And I remember being at home and watching the playbacks and I was like, I don't know. I said, can you make this black and white? He's like, yeah, sure. I just turned the color off. I said, do that. Let's have a take a look, man. And I was like, ah, that's it, man. That's it. Because I was a big fan of this movie, Raging Bull, with Robert De Niro in. Yeah. Where he plays Jake LaMotta and the boxing. And, you know, it's in black and white. And it just yeah. seems so much more realistic and, and dark and, and moody because it's in black and white. So yeah. that's why we put it in black and white. I wrote it fit a, your I surroundings wrote, perfectly. I wrote, I, I wrote an article review on Blood and Guts when it came out, and I said it was the, the greatest training video ever done and the fewest words ever spoken. <laughs> yeah, you know, again, we're, we're at home, we're doing the playbacks, and I'm like, I'm not going to say what? this is an incline press and you've got to slow the negative down and do this and give some instruction and all, because that's how things were, right? Up to that yeah, point. Yeah, they talk about it. Fuck that. I don't like talking anyway. And <laughs> I don't need to say anything because no. you can see it there. It's there yes. in your fucking face. You can see how there I'm controlling the weight. You can see what I'm doing. So forget about that. Let's do it as it's it is. Let's play it back. Repeat it. Yeah, yeah, play it back, repeat it if you didn't get it. Do it again. It was the greatest training video ever. And it yeah. doesn't need to be talked to death. Those videos back then, they'd have the bodybuilder come out and he'd talk for 15 minutes before he did a curl. Yeah. It's like, what? What, <laughs> no. what did, uh, Dorian, when, when you guys finished uh, filming all that, what did you guys originally do with that? How did you get it out there? I mean, that was, what, 96 the 96, yeah, I mean, there was not DVDs then, so it was VHS tapes. And um, no YouTube. I, had ads, I had ad space in in uh, Weeder magazine. Yeah, so we just put an ad in Weeder magazine, and uh, we had a bunch of tapes in uh, New York at uh, Bev Francis's gym. I was good friends with Bev and, and Steve there in uh, New York. So they had a, a storeroom there full of uh, tapes, and the orders was coming in through the mail and the tapes were going out in the mail and that, that's that's how it was and uh the greatest compliment that i could get and i've heard it tens of fucking thousands of times is i play that every time before i go to the gym it gets me fucking psyched up because that's why i made it yeah that's why i made it for that yeah, yeah. you know i wanted you to feel the energy because hey, I never, I, I never saw that myself. The only thing that came close to that 
was some black and white pictures that were in Muscle Mag magazine, Bob Kennedy's magazine, yeah. of yeah. on plats working out. And you know, yeah. you could just they were they were still pictures, but you could still see the fucking intensity, the sweat, the fucking grimacing, uh, the fucking sweatshirt full of sweat. Uh, and that inspired me, and I wanted to, in turn, inspire other people, and that's what I achieved with that. Dorian, let me ask you a question. Uh, Julian Schmidt one time told me, he said that when you were filming Blood and Guts, that the film crew missed the top set and the inclines, and they said, could you repeat it? And you said, you'll have to come back next week. Oh, I was thinking of telling that story. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not quite correct. I know all the secrets. Go ahead, Dorian. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, me and Kevin Horton were... We were like friends as well. So Kevin was staying at my house while we were doing the filming at my gym. So, you know, every day we we're going to the gym together, doing the filming and coming back home and having dinner and talking about the film, you know, watching some playbacks and this and that. But Kevin was a big fucking joker, you know, he was a big practical joker, always joking around. So one day we came back and it was uh, to the house and we'd filmed the back workout. So we got back into the house and uh, we're getting ready to have dinner. And Kevin's like, ah, oh, I kind of nervous. I need to speak to you about something. I'm like, what? He's like, today's workout. I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to like upset your flow or anything, but the camera jammed or the camera didn't work or something. I don't know. It was some technical problem after the first exercise, which was the pullovers. And I was like, get the fuck out of here, man. You know, it took him about three or four attempts before I realized that he was being serious. I'm like, you're really fucking serious? <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, man. Like, I don't know. Maybe we can do it tomorrow. I said, are, you, are you fucking kidding? You think I can do that again tomorrow, mate? Next week, next Thursday is my next back day. We're going to do That's when we're going to do it. And by the way, I said to my wife, Debbie, don't give this fire any fucking dinner. Sleeping in the garage tonight. Yeah, yeah. so that was the story. And, you know, somewhere, I haven't watched the tape for so long. I'm not quite sure now where, but. So he used some of the first back workout and spliced it with some of the second one. So he said, make sure you wear the same clothes, you wear the same sweatshirt and everything for continuity. But uh, Leroy, the guy that was training with me at the time, <laughs> he forgot to do that. So you'll see somewhere in the video that he's wearing a different color shirt on some exercise. Yeah. So, and didn't Weeder not want you to wear the elbow sleeves when you did pictures and yeah. oh, use yeah. fake weights and all that? Well, um, the way that they did photo shoots when I first started with the Weeder company was like that. Yeah, uh, They wanted me to wear sunglasses mm -hmm. and they come with this little spray bottle and they spray you. They oil you up Dude, and I, that would have disappointed me like, for life. Oh, like, uh, you know, like you're sweating and stuff. Yeah. And I, fortunately, my first experience working with a photographer and weeder was Chris Lund, and he was yeah, English, yeah? So I could relate to him better maybe than an American photographer. And I'm like, Chris, 
it's fucking bullshit, man. I don't wear sunglasses in the gym. I'm in the basement, man. It's fucking dark in there. I, I don't wear sunglasses. I said, I, I don't want to wear sunglasses. I don't, I don't want to do that shit. I said, by the way, why don't we lift some real weights? There's a 200-pound dumbbell in golds. I said, why don't we, instead of screwing around with his 50s or something, why don't I lift this fucking 200, yeah? And he's like, can you lift that? I'm like, yeah, I can lift it, but I'm not going to hold it at the top and smile or, you know, while you move shit around or something. It's I'm going to get and you got to get the picture, right? Yeah. So that's what I did. I did the 200-pound row, and that was my first cover on Flex. And from that day forward, certainly Chris and then the other photographers started also to change the way that they were doing photographs because lifting that 200 pound dumbbell has got the fucking veins like yeah. sticking out of my head and the neck and like you just can't get the same look by lifting a light weight and, and opposing so it's got a you know a certain energy a certain feel to the photograph that people look at and like wow look at that look at that guy's really lifting that weight um so it changed from there on until at some point, Chris was trying to get me to do stuff after a competition when I was, you know, you're still very yeah. like dehydrated and like low, super low body fat. And I was saying, no, I was saying, no, Chris, I'm not doing that because I don't want to get injured. And uh, in fact, one guy, Jean-Pierre Fuchs, he was squatting like 600 pounds or something right after a contest. And Chris would get in the pictures and you can find them, yes, online. He was, you know, snap, snap, snapping away, and Fuchs, the uh, Fuchs's uh, quads just tore in the middle of the rep, and he's like, you know, you can see the picture of him landing on the floor. So it got took a little bit too far at some point, but you know, I was very good at judging whether it would be too risky or not. So uh, yeah, it changed the way things were done, and mo most of my workout stuff I did with Weeda were with Chris Lund because we had that chemistry of, of working together and understanding each other. Um, Brian, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you something. I've always wondered this. How hard is it to win the Olympia and then not be able to celebrate because you have a photo shoot the next morning? That must be excruciating. Yeah. I mean, I, I tried to keep it under control, but you can see my condition slowly fading. Like I would go to from the contest to LA and I would have photo shoots booked for a week, mm. like morning and afternoon, morning and afternoon, different photographers, different photo shoots because they wanted to get as much material as they could basically to use all year round. Right. Uh, as I, you know, you wouldn't be in contest shape and I'll be the other side of the world as well. So they wanted to get as much as they could, but, by the end of the week, I'd start fading a little bit because I wasn't pigging out, but I wasn't staying totally on a contest diet. You know, I'd have a glass of wine at night and I'd have some ice cream and, you know. Could you, yeah. have, could you have that the night after of the Olympia? Like after you yeah, won the Olympia? I mean, I pretty much always had, a, I always had a steak and fries and some ice cream and a glass of wine. That was always Good. what I had. Good. I was not really like... I don't like junk food too much, so I was not wanting to go to McDonald's or have a big pizza right. or anything. I didn't really like right, right. that. Food. Um, <laughs> so I was staying fairly good, but you know, it wasn't 
I was eating out in restaurants and stuff and enjoying the food a little bit because up to that point, I would be, even in the off season, really most of the time I was weighing my food and eating at home. I'd only go out once a week to eat in a restaurant because I didn't know exactly what I was eating. I just, I just remember, uh, and I've told the guys this story before. So I used to work for Lou's Wick. You probably remember Lou's Wick. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, Wick stories. so, <laughs> so he said, so I was uh, 19 years old and he was having me go around and pick up Paul Dillette from the, the airport and take him to shoots and all that stuff. So he sends me down. He says, go down and pick up Dorian Yates at a weeder shoot. So I get down there. And the phone rings at the office. He goes, uh, no, we're going to change that to Akeem Albrecht. So he says, leave Dorian, here, uh, Dorian there, pick up uh, Akeem. But I remember, and speaking of diet, I remember seeing Weeder sitting, Joe Weeder sitting at a table piled about, you know, this high with donuts at a photo shoot. Now, this was probably 92, 93 Somewhere around there. I remember so, doing a, a photo shoot with Akeem at one point. That was probably around then, yeah. Yeah, so that was that was the one that I went to. But uh, so you've got all kinds of of, of things, uh, obstacles that you guys have to get through when you're trying to stay in this, uh, you know, photo perfect shape. You've got piles of donuts at the photo shoot and everything else. Yeah, well, you know, you you got that thought in your mind that people are going to be looking at these photos all year round. So you want to stay in decent shape. I was in such good shape at the contest. I could let it slip a few percent and it was yeah. still looking very good for the, for the pictures. Um, but yeah, Joe used to come to the shoots, which I couldn't understand at first. I'm like, Joe, why are you doing this? Like if I had all your money and everything, I'd just sitting on the beach having a good yeah. time. But he loved to, he loved to do it. That, that was his answer. He said, I think like, he had a good. I think he had a good photo eye, Dorian. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, I mean, as far as Joe knowing anything about training with all these weeder principles, no. and I mean that was perfect, <laughs> right? But he would like move your foot a little angle yep. here, and then, I'm not going to yep. try the Jim weeder voice because everyone does it better than me. But mm -hmm. you know, he, he would, you know, change this, change, and he knew about posing. That that was for sure. Um, I only ever did. I remember I did one muscle and fitness shoot with uh, with Weeder, and because it was always a guy and a girl, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, they had some skinny little model there <laughs> on me to do this picture, and uh, Joe was like, "Smile." I, I I can smile for the camera now because I fucking feel like smiling, but then I didn't feel like smiling. I was in a different zone. That's and I couldn't put on a full smile. If you give me a million dollars, I couldn't do it for the camera, you know? And um, he was trying so hard. And then he was speaking to my wife, can you get your husband to smile? And asking the model, can you tickle him or something, get him to smile? <laughs> Nothing was working. In the end, he's just like, ah, just let this guy do what he wants. And that, that was it. That, that was basically Joe's policy towards me. He's like, this guy, you can't tell him nothing. Just... He's just going to have to go and do what he wants. Shadows don't smile. Yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Um, what about, were you an, a natural introvert? Absolutely, yeah. Which is I figured. For bodybuilder, right? Yeah. Yeah. 
And a lot of us are that get into bodybuilding and weightlifting and all that. But it's interesting if if you're like, and, and obviously you are like me in this way, that it kind of the experiences that bodybuilding and weightlifting takes you through, it's like a stepping stone. It's like a, it's like self growth and it's, it takes you to where you need to be at the next step. Cause now you've got a supplement company and all that. You can't really do that being an introvert. So it kind of prepares you, gets you out there. I'd like to think I'm a pretty good speaker now, a public speaker, but like when I first started out, it was terrifying for me to do that. Yeah. I mean, I used to prepare notes and all this, what I'm going to talk about. And if I did a seminar, I'll like have all these notes and, you know, kind of practice and, and everything. Now I just go like, listen, blah, 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 blah. What do you want to talk about, guys? And just like chat away. Um, but even in my personal life, we used to have a celebration dinner after the Mr. Olympia back in Birmingham with about probably 30 people, family and some guys from the gym and stuff like that. And every year they tried to get me to do a speech and I would not do that. I couldn't do that. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't do a, a speech to save my life. And it was even harder in front of people that know me like, than an audience because in an audience, I can almost be an actor. You know, I can turn into being Dorian Yates, Mr. Olympia as a role where with my family and friends, I couldn't do that. So I found it really difficult to, to do that. So yeah, I was definitely... Uh, introvert and i didn't like to smile for the camera i couldn't so i created this persona of looking really fucking mean and it worked people liked it It was something different but it's not entirely me you know that real tough guy that image that i was projecting it's not really me it was more like a character uh that worked i mean in the gym yeah i guess i am a tough guy in the gym lifting weights but not really at the core. I'm not, I'm not that guy. It was just a role I was playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and Marty, this kind of leads into the athletic mind that we wanted to talk about, because I mean, in addition to bringing you like bringing an introvert out of uh, their shell, so to speak, and preparing them for whatever is down the road. Um, it also sharpens, you know, you develop this, um, uh, these, these certain characteristics from the training, you know, the discipline and just everything is, you know, listen to Dorian's schedule and everything. I mean, he didn't go to parties. He didn't, you know, he was just so very strict because he was going to be the world champion and he was the world champion. And you can't, you can't swerve off the road from that. If you really want to be the, the top, so you have to develop your, you have to be dialed in, 24-7, full circle, uh, but you develop these skills that you you can use later in life. Um, and now, you know, you're a business owner. And when you know the limitations of your mind and your, your physical being, uh, it really helps, I think, when you have, uh, when you start a business, you know how much you can work. You know how, you know, long you can work until you get tired mentally and physically you know all these things about you because you've been at the deepest, darkest places of, of your, your soul in the gym, on, you know, doing legs and going that extra rep and just, just, you know, your mind turning into the boss of your physique saying that you're going to do that extra rep. You find out you know? a lot about yourself. 
I mean, and it's yeah. not only that you got to discipline yourself to get there. What about when you get there? In a way, that's maybe even harder. Because yeah. now it's different. Now you're there, but now you've got all these people that want to pull you left, right, and center, and uh, distractions, and money. And um, I had to discipline myself for that as well. That's why I stayed in England. I stayed away from the distractions. And Stay hungry. I chose to make less money to be able to apply myself to the athletic side of it, the sport, where... I could have made more money if I took this opportunity and that opportunity and traveled here and traveled there, but it would have cut into my training, which was the real passion. Uh, I wanted to be the best that I could be. And the fact that I made a living from that as well was, was great, but it wasn't my motivation. That's why I could go the extra mile. If you're a career bodybuilder, you're thinking about the adulation and the money you can make. Um, you're, you're not going to be able to push yourself to that degree or you're not going to achieve your maximum potential. I'm sure there's p people that maybe could have beaten me if they'd have taken my approach, but they had all these other things going on. So right. it's tough to get there, but it's also tough to stay there. It doesn't get any easier. It's just different. Yeah. But, but when you move on to something else like you have, you have so many things to bring with you that you've learned so many, it's like you hit the ground running, doing, you know, yeah. moving on to the next step. Yeah, you know, you get the, all the things that you used in a sport, you can use in a business or maybe a relationship or, or anything. Um, everything in the end comes back to the mind, what energy you put into the subject that you're, you're focusing on. Um, yep. But I try to be not too extreme with anything now. As I said, I'm trying to find a middle ground on everything. Spend some time on my business, spend some time on my personal life and spend some time looking after my fitness and trying to, and the spiritual life and trying to balance all that rather than being extreme. You know, I want to make millions and millions in my business and I'm going to fucking work 14 hours a day and stress myself out. And uh, I did that in bodybuilding. I did an extreme. So everything now is middle ground. Balanced, more balanced. Yeah. yeah. How do you spend your time? Are you mostly at home in Spain? Do you, are you on the road quite a bit? How's that working? Mostly in Spain, but of course, the last year with all this COVID yeah, bullshit, right. we can't even right, go into right. that because that'll be a whole podcast in, its, in itself. Yeah. Um, so that put a spanner in the works uh, as far as uh, traveling. Usually I do a few certification camps. Like I had planned to do one in New York and one in LA at Gold's Gym, where I certify um, personal trainers uh, to become master trainers of my DYHIT, I call it my HIT methods. Um, so I do a couple of camps of that. And obviously, the major contests I probably go to and expos uh, <clears throat> around the world, uh, big expos in Dubai, in UK, in Europe, and USA. Um, those are, those are traveling. I actually have a camp in uh, Costa Rica that I'm going to next week, which is uh, at an ayahuasca center, which, you know, I don't know if you know much about ayahuasca, but it's a, it's a plant medicine yeah. spiritual yeah. experience that, that I went through a few times and I just spoke about it. And uh, 
Then the center out in Costa Rica asked me if I wanted to go there and headline a camp and bring people from the fitness industry that might be interested in doing that. So I do that as well. So again, it's balanced. I do some traveling, um, but I, I like to be at home in Spain. It's a beautiful place to be. It's almost like a vacation spot. Anyway, I don't really need to do too much as far as going on vacation to escape because I'm already there. Yeah, that, that's the way I feel living in the mountains. Uh, Jim Steele and I do a lot of work with uh, American military, top, top, top levels, tier one guys. Yeah. And um, they're using a lot of ayahuasca and uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, trauma, yeah. Yeah, they're working out of Mexico currently, and uh, they're, you know, they're sending quite a few ex-military guys down there to, to get them cleansed out. We had um, Master Chief Jason Henderson on, who is a uh, squad leader at highest level, and, and he had uh, gone through the ayahuasca treatment, I guess, within the last six months. So it's getting... It's getting a lot of traction with, within uh, military circles. That's amazing. Yeah, psychedelics, there's a lot of potential there um, for, for trauma, PTSD, depression, and anxiety, and so on. Um, and, uh, what that, was your first, when, being, was your fir when was your first experience? How long ago? Wow. Well, <laughs> uh, my first experience, and please, there's not advice, don't try this at home, kids. Um, I went to Brazil where I met my wife and we went on a trip to the Amazon and, you know, I was still in the whole <clears throat> Dorian playboy type of thing. Then she'd been a balancing, calming influence on me, but I was still that guy, you know? So we were in the middle of the Amazon um, and, uh, you know, the best cocaine comes from out that way. So we went out for a night out. I was doing some Coke and I was drinking. And then the next day we're on this boat out in the Amazon. And I'm asking the guide, like, it was something I read about and I'd vaguely heard about, but then it was not something many people knew about, but I just kind of knew the name and it was a spiritual experience. And I always enjoyed smoking weed. So I was kind of interested in these things. I said to the guy, hey, uh, can you get this ayahuasca stuff? And he's like, yeah, sure, I can get it, you know, so much and this and that. So I ended up doing ayahuasca on a beach in the Amazon the day after I've been doing coke and drinking alcohol, which is like, I mean, that could be lethal. I didn't, but I didn't right. know. And they told me I had no advice. I had no shame in there. All these things. No guidance. No, no. Oh, it is, yeah. is essential. So if you're going to do it, uh, <clears throat> it, was a, <clears throat> it was a bad experience. I just felt I was just violently ill. Right. And uh, the only message I got in my head, which I didn't realize so much until afterwards, is that I had a repetitive message in my head, a female voice telling me, stop poisoning yourself. And I was like, yeah, but where's my spirit animal? And where's all the messages? And why I'm not flying through the, the jungle? Yeah. And yeah, right. stop poisoning right. yourself. Stop poisoning yourself. Stop poisoning yourself. And I didn't realize until later on that I did a real ceremony and I did the ceremony and I wasn't in a good place. I was going through a lot of business stress. I wasn't sleeping. I was like very stressed out and depressed. And um, I went to this camp with a real shaman done properly. I took the drink and uh, 
I saw this like green swirling mist in front of me. And a female voice again said, do you remember me? Like in my head, it's not audible. It's like, it's in your head. Do you remember me? I'm like, yeah. Are you scared? And I said, no, I'm not scared. So can I come? I said, yeah, come. And um, I had this incredible experience. And the next day I felt like a totally different person. I was not stressed. I was sleeping and... Uh, did it, did it, did I, looked, I just saw the whole situation I was in from all like different perspectives and angles. And even the people that I was involved with that I thought they were assholes and they were cheating. And, the, you know, they all had their own story. And I was, I saw it from all this multidimensional angles. Um, and then I, I spoke about it on some podcasts and uh, that was about 10 years ago, my first experience. And then this camp out in Salt in Costa Rica called Saltara, they, you know, they came up with this idea, why don't you come here and uh, bring some other people with you and have your own experience? And uh, I wasn't sure at first because my first one, I was anonymous and I liked it. Nobody knew who I was at the camp. Um, so I wasn't sure how it would be like leading a group of people. But when it comes to the ceremonies and the ayahuasca and the shamans, I'm nothing to do with that. I'm just the guy that brings people there and we have a few talks in the day and we hang out and stuff like that. But the actual ayahuasca ceremonies, uh, I'm just a participant. I'm not involved in that. I'm not a shaman or an expert or anything right. like that. Dorian, I, I think one of the most interesting things I've heard you say about the ayahuasca experience is that you said, imagine that we all live in this box you know, we have our day-to-day -day stuff. We're kind of in a box. It's the same old thing every day. Ayahuasca is like a trampoline that allows you to jump up and see outside of that box. I'm glad you remember that. It's a great quote because I forgot about that one. <laughs> yeah, so, so talk about what do you what were you seeing outside the box? Man, it's like when people ask me to describe an ayahuasca or DMT experience. It's like you feel so inadequate. It's kind you of impossible can't. to... It's beyond, it's beyond to verbalization. Yeah, because, because I only have words. I only have yeah. images that I can try to use to explain it, and it's kind of beyond that. And everyone's experience is different. Um, but I think what I'm saying when you jump out of the box is there's way more to reality than we perceive through our five senses. We're living in a very fucking minute band of light and there's so much more out there. Not necessarily out there when I, because it's in the same space. It's time and space yeah. is an illusion. So everything is in the same space, if that makes sense. But you can't see it. My fucking cat can see it. You ever seen a cat like looking like they're looking at something because they, they got a different uh band width to us so it's like this i don't know how many radio stations you can pick up on your radio right now it might be hundreds right but they're all in the same space you just got to turn the dial yeah you know they're all in your room they're all in that room but you wouldn't you can only perceive one at a time because you're like you tuned into radio number one you're going to get radio number one but there's a thousand other ones out there so it allows you to see more of that and realize that there's more and that somehow 
we're we're all one thing. Everything's one thing. It's all connected. All the all us individual people having our individual experiences. Uh, uh, in the end, all one thing having an experience. If that even makes any sense. Is it a, is it a way to bring our minds closer to being able to kind of understand a larger part of the universe and maybe even God? Just yeah, a little I mean, bit, you know. Yeah, like what is God? Like God yeah. is everything. God is is creation, and we're just part of it. We're not separate from it, which is what religions try to teach you because they want to control you. You know, you've got to somehow make your way back there. Right. You're already there. You are. You are part of it. You're not separate. You are God. Like if you know that you, your um, consciousness having an experience and consciousness is God. So we're all part of it, not separate from it. Are, are you able when you're under, and I don't know if you go under, I mean, are you conscious? You, you're aware of your surroundings when you're doing this? Somewhat. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can open your eyes and you can see in the room that might, you might be seeing shapes and colors as well, but you can still see, uh, you can get up mostly. Sometimes I couldn't get up. I needed help, but, Sometimes you want to get up and go for a piss or something. You're going to go walk outside, and but everything's a little different, you know. And you could, they call it at the camp, they call it the bathroom vortex. Be careful when you go in the bathroom and you go for a piss or a shit uh, or throwing <laughs> up, which is quite common. Um, you don't get stuck in the bathroom like, whoa, this is a whole different world. Yeah, this thing on ayahuasca must be crazy. <laughs> it is, man. But you know what I say to people? You really want to know? Go do it, because I can't. I can't do justice to it, and yeah. uh, I think it's a positive experience for everyone that's done it. I got a group, WhatsApp groups of the my camps, about three different groups of twenty people that have done to date, and uh, they've all made changes in their life somehow, uh, in a positive way. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's it's broken the box. It's broken the mold. Uh -huh. Gives you an ability to, to look at yourself from a different perspective. We, we, we're all very frozen in our self perceptions, and, and whether it's an LSD experience or a peyote experience or an ayahuasca experience, which is a deeper version of that, that's also why it's important that you have a shaman or a guide if you're doing well, this. They're, stuff they're essential part of it, man. I mean, they, they exactly. will, you will speak to them before the ceremonies about who you are and why you're there. And you know, well, they, well, otherwise, it's just a trip to the carnival. And they will, they do what's called, uh, at least in the tradition, the Shipibo tradition, which is from Peru, which is the guys I work with. They will come and uh, sing Icaros, which are like songs. But they, you know, they have a vibrational, spiritual uh, power to the songs. And the song that they'll sing for Marty because of who he is and what he's said and what he's working with mm. and the energy they can see beyond what we can see and the plant is guiding them because the, the shamans will drink as well. So they'll be guided on what they need, what energy they need to direct towards you for your experience and for your particular situation and so on. So for me, taking ayahuasca without the shamans is just a, just yeah. you know you say it's just entertainment it'd just be a waste of time 
Were you able to reflect on your career or your personal life when you were doing it? Does it take you yeah, back? Yeah, stuff and- came up. I mean, traumas that I had in my life that intellectually I, I could understand, yeah, that was traumatic, but I felt that pretty much I come to terms with it, but I, I hadn't, you know, it was somewhat buried and it had to come out. Um, a, a lot of stuff like that and, you know, and we, and we all have those. I need to I need to get in touch with this guy that I fell out with and just like squash that and different things like that were, were coming up, you know, because everyone's got their story. Everyone's got their journey and why they do what they do and why they behave. And in the end, we're all we're all part of one one energy. Did it, did it reassure you on? Excuse me. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead, JP. Ask another question. Go ahead, ask a question. Guys, I would love to talk with you all night, but I got another yeah. podcast in five minutes. I hope I got something left to say. Cause... Oh, you do? Okay. Go ahead, Marty. Great, buddy. Right, I, we could yeah, do another I, one another time because I enjoyed it, you know? Yeah, and, and again, Dorian, I, I think that the, that the whole psychedelic thing is, is if it's handled correctly, it can be life-changing yes. and it can get traction but you have to be very careful. This is you're 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 fooling with high explosives, and if you yeah, have a you need to do it in the right yeah. setting, the right people, and uh, you got to do work afterwards as well. It's not like yes. this is going to happen and everything's going to be all all good. Again, it might be not pleasant sometimes the experience, and there might be things you need to work on. Um, but it'll definitely give you. Um, uh, plenty, of, plenty, of, right. plenty of home, plenty of homework. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And uh, how to integrate it back, the experience back into your life. Uh, the team I work with at Saltara are great because they have a whole team of people uh, coaching you during the day outside of the ceremonies. The shamans just do the ceremonies and they disappear and you know go rest or do whatever they do. But in the daytime, we have meetings, we have sharing sessions. Uh, to try to like because i remember the first time i had a great experience and i came home and i was like wow i'm like a fucking wizard and i've been <laughs> i've been here for thousands of years and this happened and that and that and this and my wife just looked at me and said would you like a cup of tea yeah <laughs> you know i was like so deflated that take you gotta the, be careful t- how you into your life when you go back yeah, you gotta have that support yeah. Do you yeah. do you do you wish that you could have had this experience while you're uh, while you were in your career, or was it the right thing to do to wait till you were done? It happened when it was supposed to happen. Perfect. Yeah, that's that's it. I mean, I got more stories, but we don't have time. I had uh, somebody that I helped that was that had a trauma, but they're very gifted as well. They get messages and. Uh, I had this first experience with ayahuasca when I was, you know, in a fucking toxic state from alcohol and drugs, which wasn't good. And it wasn't a good experience for me or it wasn't pleasant, let's say. Um, so when the opportunity came for a second one, I was I'm in an RM whether I should go. And my friend called me up and she said she had a vision and she knew nothing about the fact that I was thinking about ayahuasca or anything. She had a vision and, uh, it was three little native guys sitting down, stirring this liquid in pots in the jungle. 
and they were chanting my name. And she said, I don't know what it means, but, you know, I got to tell you about it. And I was like, shit, that's ayahuasca. So the spirit of the plant was calling out to me. And, uh, you know, it's not just a plant. It's not just a chemical concoction. It's a spiritual force, and it's an intelligence beyond our understanding uh, that is here to help us evolve because... uh, you know, we need to evolve because we're fucking the planet up and it's it, it doesn't want that and it won't accept that. So it's trying to help us to get through that. Yeah. I like the one thing you said. You, we ought to get all the world leaders together in a room and put them on ayahuasca. Yeah. And what a different world we'd live in, huh? Yeah, I think they're, so. They're, they would never take that because they're playing for a different team. But that's, that's, the whole, right. that's another story. That's another right? podcast, isn't it? I think yeah. so. Well, listen, man, we uh, we really appreciate you coming on. It's an honor. We're always talking about you. You're in lots of uh, Marty's articles. You're in his book, Purposeful Primitive. So uh, we're a big fan of yours. So we really appreciate it. Uh, anything coming up? I mean, your your website, if people want to go to your website, it's dynutrition.com. D-Y-Nutrition. And I had already 10,000 people asking me when I'm coming to the U.S. with the brand um and we're working on that it's been delayed because of the whole lockdown situation and everything but i hope that we'll be in the u.s uh by early next year u.s and canada um so that's dy nutrition i also got dy academy which is an online um coaching platform so i help people there remotely with their training and their diet and uh dyhit is my uh certification program so there's three different websites there you can take a look at and of course some on instagram and uh and facebook as well so so you know a lot of stuff out there if people want to take a look that'll be great you're all over the place well we appreciate it man all right great guys it's been really been a pleasure and great catching up with you again marty and uh sure if you guys want to do this again in a few months time or something or be honored to be on there and uh you know we'd love to I, I'm, I'm honored that the powerlifting and strength community recognizes me and what I did because um, I got a lot of respect for you guys as well. Yeah, no Corinne, let us know if you get to New York because we're about three hours outside and we'll we'll come see if you do get to New York City. Yeah, I'm, uh, I hope to do a certification program in, in New York. And so if I'm going to do that, I'll let you know ahead of time. Yeah, that'd be great. All right, guys. Thanks, Have a great right. day. Thank you. Thanks, Dorian. Bye. Bye.